Hello, and welcome to the ALSI podcast, where we share the stories of lung cancer patients and their caregivers, as well as the work of doctors and researchers in the field. Today, we have the great honor and privilege of having Katie Brown with us. Katie is a cancer survivor, cancer caregiver, and 20-year lung cancer advocate. She's a trained and certified oncology patient navigator and the author of the guidebooks, Co-Surviving Cancer and Navigating Advocacy. Katie became a cancer survivor at the age of 22, and in 2002, she became a cancer caregiver and a lung cancer patient advocate. Katie advocated on behalf of her father during his own cancer journey, which eventually led her to do the same for thousands of lung cancer patients and families throughout the online support network she helped create called the Lung Cancer Support Community, or LCSC. In 2006, LCSC became a service of Longevity Foundation and has over 10,000 listed members and millions of visits a month. Katie is also the founder of Deep Breathe DFW, Dallas Fort Worth's first 5K walk and run benefiting lung cancer research. She also created Dallas Fort Worth's first lung cancer support group, lobbied with Smoke Free Texas and for the Cancer Prevention and Research Institute of Texas, when was a local and national delegate for Live Strong 2006-2010. Katie has been recognized with many awards for her work in nonprofit and patient advocacy, and in her spare time, she speaks at conferences, health fairs, hospitals, support groups, schools, and events, and routinely volunteers with nonprofits and charities. Katie, we are so honored to have you on our podcast today, so thank you for your time. And to introduce the moderators today, my name is Pranka Sento. My name is Meida Naga. My name is Anesh Gugulam, and we're with the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative, a national 501c3 nonprofit working to raise awareness about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. So our first question for you, Katie, is could you please tell us a little more about yourself? Sure. Like was said in the introduction, I am a cervical cancer survivor. And in 2002, I became the primary caregiver for my father, who was diagnosed with lung cancer. And I've been an advocate for 20 years this year. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So our next question is, do you think you could tell us a little bit more about your father's cancer journey? Absolutely. So when he was diagnosed, I was in my late 20s. I had already been a cancer survivor. And I assumed since he had never been sick and had physicals every year that whatever it was, we had found it early. And when the biopsy came back and the results were given, it was an extensive stage lung cancer. It had already progressed from one lung to the other, to his liver, to his clavicle, and to his brain. So you can imagine in 2002, there were no support groups, no lung cancer specific resources, definitely not an ALCSI, just just nowhere. We were really isolated and alone. And that really was the pivot point to my advocacy. And can you tell us a little bit more about your experience being a caregiver for your father? And um, how did that, that this experience shape your path as a patient advocate? You know, I didn't, it's, it's strange. You know, you, you're, you're not, you don't, don't inherently know about the medical community. You don't know how things work. You don't, you don't know about diseases and, and, you know, all the steps it takes to get a diagnosis. And the frustration was real. I mean, while we were dealing with life and death and all the emotions of, you know, am I going to lose my dad? You know, is, is my four year old going to remember his grandfather? All of those things as a caregiver, you really feel helpless. 
So what I did, and I think what a lot of people do is try to take back a little bit of control. And for me, that was information. I needed to know as much as I could about what we were fighting. I needed to know what the options were. And I just, you know, they didn't give us a guidebook. You know, there, there, there wasn't a, a clear path to take. So there were a lot of trials and challenges, but that definitely was the catalyst to finding all the gaps and all the unmet needs, not only just for the patient, but definitely for the caregiver. So Katie, how did you balance the role of being a daughter with being a caregiver? What were some of the challenges that you navigated along the way? Okay, this is a great question. And again, it was the blind leading the blind, right? So when you become a caregiver for your parent, that's that's a really difficult thing because your roles change. And in in trying to be an advocate and then to be a daughter, you have to change those hats. You know, I found that I could not be a daughter and an advocate. Lots of tips and tricks that I learned because I was dealing with my father's unique personality. And I think all of us, you know, our, our relatives are unique in their way and they learn in their way. Um, but it was really hard for me. So there were times that we did not talk about cancer. And that's when I was his daughter. Times when we would spend together. That's when I was his daughter. But when we went to medical appointments, when there was new news to share, he would he would listen to me as an advocate. But I found ways to say that, you know, Dr. So-and-so provided this and Dr. So-and-so provided that because he would much rather listen to the medical professional as opposed to his youngest daughter. So it is a challenge. Yeah, and it must have been tricky to figure out that balance between being a daughter and being a caregiver. So our next question is, how did your role as a caregiver change over time? And how did you figure out how to best navigate this tricky journey? Yeah, I'll be real honest with you. And this is the reason why I wrote a guidebook. And and we may or may not talk about that. But lung cancer is kind of fast and furious. You know, the from diagnosis to treatment options to learning about clinical trials and second opinions and and all of these things. And I'm sure other diseases are the same way, but I just know about lung cancer. And so I really felt like I was in a, a daze. You know, I was on autopilot. I was trying to raise a small child, finish college and take care of my dad. And it it was really, really hard. And I think by the time I got a grasp on it, his experience with lung cancer was coming to an end. So very different than caregiving for someone who may have, you know, an, you know, mental decline or Alzheimer's or something like that, where it goes for a very long time. So I knew that had I had those tools at the beginning of my dad's cancer experience, lung cancer experience, I would have had, he may have had a better quality of life. He may have lived a little bit longer. We may have tapped into palliative care as supportive care. All of those things that I learned after the fact. So the actual caregiving was trial by fire, and we did the best that we could with what we knew. But after it was over for me, I knew that I wanted to do something to make it a little easier for somebody else who was caregiving for for a loved one. 
So you mentioned that you started to figure out caregiving after the, after a while. And so we've had the opportunity to talk with several lung cancer patients and some of their spouses, their partners. And we often hear from their caregivers that, you know, very similar story that they were unsure of how best to support um, their loved one. And then we hear from the lung cancer patient that, you know, they had, they had a lot of support from, from family members, from friends, but it wasn't necessarily the support that they were needed or that they were looking for. And so, you know, especially near that end, um, when you did, did, uh, when you were able to figure out, you know, caregiving a little bit, can you tell us, you know, what that looked like and, and how, how you kind of figured that out and how you knew that that was, that was the support that your father needed? Right. So at the end of the day, it's what the patient wants, right? And that took me a long time to figure out because no, it's what I want. <laughs> it's what I want for you. You know, it's what the doctor wants for you. Really, it's what the patient wants. And what I figured out was caregiving is all about communication. And if you were not a great communicator before lung cancer happened, you're probably not a great communicator after lung cancer happened. So we have to keep in mind the personality differences, um, how people learn, all of those things. And if you're constantly talking, if you're organized, if you have an action plan, those are things that can be followed. And if everybody is on the same page, there's a lot less miscommunication and hurt feelings. And there's, a, I feel like there's a better experience for the patient if if that happens. So Katie, you'd mentioned that you are a cancer survivor yourself. How was your cancer journey similar or different from your father's? It was very different. I was diagnosed at 22 with cervical cancer. I had gone in, um, like they tell you to do every year, um, to get your checkups, your well-woman exams, and they found something. I had two surgeries, and I really never thought about it again. I just I, I just thought, okay. And also with my disease, because I was diagnosed with cervical cancer, there's a stigma around gynecological cancers. There can be. So when my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer, the stigma around lung cancer, you know, that feeling of isolation and maybe guilt or blame um, may be similar across those those two two cancer types and, and a lot of other cancer types. What I've learned since then is you don't have to do anything to get cancer. Anyone can get cancer. So let's just throw that stigma out the door. And what I've also learned is, you know, they caught my cancer early. You know, they need to do that with all the other cancers, especially with lung cancer as, as little, little funding and treatment options and support that's available for those guys. Our next question goes back to something that you mentioned earlier, which was that you only really figured out how to navigate the position of being an advocate and a caregiver after your father's cancer journey. The question relates to your involvement with longevity. So how has your experience as a caregiver and a survivor influenced your work with longevity? And could you speak a little bit about the work that you do with this organization? Sure. Well, my my work started with the lung cancer support community, and that was a nonprofit that helped um, people impacted by lung cancer. And then as that population, that, that community grew and grew and grew, we connected with Longevity, who at that time was just out of Chicago, and all they did was research. So you had my support organization, and you had them doing research. So it was a really great 
merger at that time. And uh, it still exists on their website. And I went on to work for 16 more years of longevity. And in doing that, and, and I was able to see patients and their caregivers across the country. I was able to see the difference in care from, you know, at, at different geographical regions and, and all of the gaps that, that really exist. And, and I really began to listen advisory boards and patients and caregivers and, and hearing what they had to say and making sure you separate the patient and the caregiver so that they can be honest and, and share the things that, that were challenging for them. And so, you know, throughout those 16 years, I, I, I have really, really grown as an advocate and able to work with, you know, all the stakeholders and, and pharmaceutical companies and medical providers and um, oncology nurse navigators. And my bottom line, as someone who is a lung cancer uh, advocate and a cancer survivor, is that cancer patients and their families have to be the center. They have to be first. Communication has to be clear and there has to be a team and able, you know, and able to achieve some sort of success. So these days I'm doing a lot of consulting work and um, I do some work with an organization called Live Lung out of uh, North Carolina and a lot of work putting the voice to um, putting the patient voice to social media campaigns and a lot of caregiving advocacy projects. Thank you for asking. Of course. And you mentioned near the beginning that of the podcast that your family wasn't given a guidebook on how to navigate cancer. And I, and I think that's that's the primary reason why a lung cancer support community like LCSC is so important. Um, because for individuals who are recently diagnosed with lung cancer, we oftentimes hear, you know, I wish I was able to connect with other lung cancer patients sooner or more easily. Because even, even now, unfortunately, I think that that connection and the connection to all the resources that, that we have now that we didn't have e- even five years ago, 10 years ago is, is not super seamless. And so patients after receiving a huge diagnosis, like, like one of lung cancer are left to kind of figure out things on their own. And, and it, it can be a lot when a lot of the terminology is foreign um, and unfamiliar, as well as like, you know, just an uncertainty that comes with a cancer, like, like lung cancer that moves very, moves very fast. And so being able to, I think, talk with other patients who've gone through, who've gone through lung cancer, even if it's not the same, you know, type of lung cancer or the same stage, just being able to talk to them about what were some questions that you asked your doctor, what were some things that you wish you knew, or what was your treatment like, even those, just being able to connect with someone else, I think, makes a whole lot of difference. And, and it, it starts to, you know, then feel like you're not left to go to go about on this journey by yourself. So so thank you for your work, Katie. I, I think it's it's so so important that we have an online community like LCSE. Um, and I know it's it's helping a lot of a lot of people. So, so we're so grateful for all the work that you're doing. Our next question it talks about another one of your initiatives, Reads Deep Dallas Fort Worth. And so uh, this is the uh, the 5K and run that you organized. Can you talk a little bit about all the planning that went behind it to make it a a success because I know this is the first 5K and run dedicated to raising lung to uh, dedicated for lung cancer research, and so I'm sure this uh, was not um, easy work. So, so we'd love to hear about um, all the all the planning logistics that that went behind it. Right. So, my previous experiences as a paper pusher, <laughs> I'm not a marathon runner. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not a super athletic person. <laughs> so. 
I had to learn a lot about 5Ks and what exactly is a 5K and um, the things that can happen in a community and fundraising and and raising awareness. So um, it's really exciting to get mayors in the community involved, exciting meeting local lung cancer survivors who can share wonderful stories, talking with the media. The, The event hasn't happened since COVID, but now they're all over the country. They they even happen virtually. So as long as there's that support and that momentum and that excitement in, hey, you know, we can really fund something that could extend or save the lives of patients. It's just really exciting. So I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I just knew that, you know, the other, you know, more more girly cancers do these kinds of things. And I wanted something for lung cancer too. So, you know, me and a four-year-old and, you know, a, a few other people just went out there and made it happen. And and that was about 18 years ago, 18, 19 years ago. So Katie, you've written two books, which address advocacy efforts and tips on g- caregiving. So were there any particular stories or lessons from your journey that you felt compelled to share in either of those books? So for co-surviving cancer, the the one story that that stands out to me and when I share it in a room full of patients and their loved ones, I get a lot of like us. Um sometimes cancer treatments affect your appetite. And sometimes patients won't want to eat because they feel sick. And as a loved one, a spouse, a caregiver, you know, all you can do is like cook and bring food and try to nourish your loved one. And I can't tell you over the years how many caregivers are like, I'm so mad. He just won't eat. He refuses to eat. Blah, 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 blah. And there's, there's that, that, you know, that that disconnect in, hey, you know, your person's really sick. They don't have an appetite. And maybe when they do feel a little bit hungry, by the time you give them food, they feel sick again. So just tips on grazing, putting little snacks on a table in front of your person while they're watching TV, walking through and switching them out, kind of like a little mini buffet, just to have them graze a little bit um, helps with all of, you know, the arguments. I remember my mom saying, you know, because my mom was a limited English speaker, so she could not be the caregiver, the primary caregiver. But she could cook and she was so angry. He just won't eat. Doesn't he want to live? What's wrong with him? And um, it's like, no, he's he's just really, really sick. You know, find out what doesn't make him feel sick. You know, is it cold stuff? Is it hot stuff? Let's work this out because it's really not about you. <laughs> and so that's a great story that I like to share. It it seems really simple, but, you know, it's it's just everybody being on the same page and having that conversation. And then for advocacy, it, it might be really overwhelming for someone who maybe just finished treatment for lung cancer or their loved one just finished treatment. And they're seeing advocates or advocate opportunities out there, but they've never done anything like that before. Or they're not in the medical field or they don't have any skills that they think can help. You know, you don't have just like caregiving, you know, you don't have to be an expert to be an advocate. You know, your story makes you an expert. 
So, you know, I share with advocates, just, just start small, sharing your story, connecting with another survivor, um, helping them understand the terminology or get connected with the community. Um, that's advocacy too. You know, you can be a, an armchair advocate. You don't have to go out and stump the hill. All of those things give us a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning in a really kind of crappy situation. So when I share that with advocates, they're like, okay, I can do something. And so it's, it's great to encourage folks that way. Thank you for sharing that. And our next question also relates to lung cancer advocacy. So where do you see the future of lung cancer advocacy going? And in what area specifically would you like to see more progress? Yeah, so up until 2002, I looked into the lung cancer community as a professional advocate, as someone who was the senior vice president of a nonprofit. And even though I was talking to patients, I was still the senior vice president of a nonprofit. And now that I'm independent kind of a person and it's just me, you know, there's there's no organization that I'm working for. I'm hearing a lot more and patients are telling me in our, in our community zooms and and in our online is that their voice needs to be a part of this process throughout the years. You know, a, a lot of folks have tried to do that, but they're really now patients are really now focused on whether or not a project had a patient a part, be a part of it. So that's what they're talking about. They're talking about a better communication between themselves and their, their health systems, which if you're at a large health system, um, everything might be great. But if you're at a little local community health system, maybe not so much. So those folks really want um, better communication with their healthcare systems. They want better access to things like clinical trials and uh, studies that may be going on, and they want to connect with other patients. So that's really where I see them going. They're, they're part of the, the DOD consumer reviewer opportunities. They sit on panels for the FDA and for you know, pharma and other stakeholders. But what I will say for anybody listening out there, pick real patients, like real patients, patients that look like the community and not like your super advocates who may also be an MD or PhD or something like that, you know, based your programs on real patients who have never been in the medical community before and let them tell you how they best learn so that the project is not just a project. The project is a success and actually helps people. I think that's really fantastic advice, Katie. We haven't heard that before. So, so that's, um, that's really wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. So this is going back to something that you had said earlier. You mentioned that some of the other, you know, other cancers, some of the other girly cancers have frequent 5Ks and fundraising efforts. And we get asked this question a lot um, at our own community events. And that's, you know, why doesn't lung cancer have that same level of advocacy or focus as some of these other cancers like breast cancer, cervical cancer that, you know, have a lot of events, especially during their that cancer's awareness month, like October for breast cancer. And so we would love to get your opinion on this, um, on this question as, as to why we don't see that same level of focus for lung cancer. And then also, I know you already touched upon this, but how can we change this on a high level and on a large scale and see and, you know, start making differences in 
and advocacy? That, that's, that's a really big question. It's a great question. What I can tell you from, from a patient perspective and the patients that I continue to support today is that they respond to other patients. So if you are constantly sharing stories from real people that are going through this and in terms of education, clinical trial knowledge, the the benefits of connecting in a community, the benefits of screening, um, listening to patients. Patients trust other patients because, you know, at the end of the day, everybody else is just doing their job. So patients trust other patients. So I would say, you know, let's see more faces at those 5Ks that are sharing great stories. Let's get more stories of patients or initiatives or white ribbon builds into the media and just keep focusing on those things. I know that it is very impactful to see a young mother of small children who is fighting for lung cancer. And that's great. We need to see that to know that everyone can get lung cancer, but lung cancer also looks like you and me and, uh, you know, all different colors and all different ages and all different experiences. So I think it's important to see those things because if we make it common, then people won't be afraid to talk about it. I think that's a great point, Katie. So we'll now move on to a couple questions that were submitted from our audience. First question is, as a prominent patient advocate, you have been recognized with numerous awards for your nonprofit work. What are some of the most rewarding moments or achievements you've experienced in your advocacy journey? You know, I've had a lot. And I I, I will say that they're, they're great, maybe for credibility. But my, my, my favorite and most meaningful awards are testimonies from patients that I've worked with, uh, people who, you know, found their voice because they came to an event that I was at, that I was speaking at, or they had, you know, called me and, and, and I supported them. Last year, I was nominated for um, a Hope Award through Cure Magazine, and I didn't I, I wasn't holding my breath to win. It wasn't anything that I was counting on. But the two nominations that they provided to me to read is what I have hanging on my walls, because that's what's important to me. So that's 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 why I do what I do. Um, and, I, and I'm not getting paid. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, Katie. It must be so awesome to feel like you really made an impact on the lives of people just by hearing from them. Our next question has to do with your writing projects. So you've written two books so far on advocacy and caregiving. And what we would like to know is, are there any other writing projects that you're currently working on? Or do you have plans to explore different themes focusing on this issue in future works? Great question. Thanks for asking. Um, right now, I am doing some consulting work for other organizations. So there might be an article or a blog or a social media campaign out there that, that I've written. But my plan is both books just hit five years. So a lot has changed in that time. 
Um, I, I remember writing the caregiver book and talking about biomarker testing, biomarker testing. So much has changed since then. So both of them are, are the plan is for um, a refresh of both of them, maybe beef them up a little bit more since, you know, initially I was an, an adult daughter caregiver. Now I'm caregiving for, for my husband, which is a whole other, <laughs> a whole other perspective. Um, but all of that really needs to be in the book. So I'll be doing that. I also, uh, write blogs, um, I am katiebrown.com and, you know, I am talking to you on your podcast right now. Well, that's very exciting to hear. Um, we, we really eagerly await those, um, those, this book. So, so, um, Everyone who's listening, keep your eye out. Um, and, and Kate, just related to that, where can people find you? I know you said katiebrown.com, but, but how else can people find you or connect with you? So I'm on all the socials. So just look for I am Katie Brown. Um, my website, I am katiebrown.com and Instagram, I am Katie Brown too, <laughs> because I am Katie Brown was hacked. Uh, don't go there. And um, just just find me in the lung cancer community. I am there. We hold community meetups every Monday at the Lung Cancer Support Network. Look for that on Facebook. And um, yeah, I'm around. I'm easy to find. So Katie, how does the knowledge you've gained as a certified oncology patient navigator translate to the role of a caregiver? I love that question. So I was already vice president of longevity when I got my certifications. Um, I did not get the certifications for the purpose of working in a hospital, but I wanted to know what they were doing. You know, there's, there's this new, um, you know, there's this, this, this new group of, of patient, uh, patient navigators who are going to come in. And, and help lung cancer patients and do this and do that. And I thought, okay, let me find out what they're doing. And uh, I went through the program three times with three different organizations. Um, I learned quite a lot. Um, I, I feel like you have to see behind the curtain to be able to help. Um, by the time the patient got to me, um, they were already um, in treatment and at, at a pivot point where they were going to you know, change or move or get a second opinion. And my first question was, you know, do you have a navigator? Do you have a case manager? Do you have a, and it was always no. And so I thought, gosh, you know, these are some really, really great resources. You know, if I could plug navigators with lung cancer patients, then maybe we wouldn't have people fall off the radar. You know, maybe they would be more compliant. Maybe they would look into clinical trials. Maybe they would feel more supported. Maybe they would have more quality of life. So that's why I was so interested in learning what it is that they do. Um, I agreed with it on paper. I wanted to see it in action. And it it really has driven how I created support programs for patients um, with my last organization. And it also drives how I um, support, uh, as a volunteer, the patients that come um, every Monday to our, our group. And through your experiences as an oncology patient navigator and as an organizer of several support programs, I'm sure that you've worked with a lot of different lung cancer patients. So our question for you is, what is the most important piece of advice you would give to a lung cancer patient who might be listening to this podcast? The most important advice that I would give is to say that you're not alone, period. You are not alone. 
Um, even if you like being alone, <laughs> when you have like cancer, it's better if you're not alone. Um, there's so much knowledge to be gained to connect to a peer community. You know, you don't have to connect to an organization. You don't have to, you know, connect to um, a physical uh, support group. If that bothers you too, you can do it virtually. Um, but there's something about connecting with other people who get it. Uh, and that you can share with that helps you go about living the rest of your life. Because there are things I can share or that my patients can share um, in the, the network meetup that they would never share with their patients. And there are things that they share with us that they would never share with their healthcare provider. And we're like, you better <laughs> take that to your healthcare provider. You better go right now. And so it's it's just a great opportunity um, free opportunity, connect with the community. You're not alone. And, um, you know, just, just own it. The moment you're diagnosed, you're a survivor. You're not alone. Connect with the community. It can really help. And clinical trials, clinical trials are, are wonderful things. So, yeah, I love that. Thank you, Katie, for sharing. I think, um, you hit, you hit the nail right on the head is that, you know, even if, even if an individual has a lot of familial and, familial support and support from friends, you know, some things that some things may be easier to share with um, a lung cancer support network where, where you're able to connect with other patients who are going through that exact same thing. Um, so I think, I, I think it's really important that, that pe- the patients um, you know, try to find those groups, whether it's online or in person. Um, but yeah. And so our last question that we received is what are some actionable steps people can take if they want to be a lung cancer patient advocate themselves? So first I would say connect to the community, to a community if you haven't already. Doesn't matter which one, just there, there are uh, several lung cancer communities out there now. Um, connect with them, find out what advocacy opportunities are available, um, learn, learn how to share your story. I know that sounds strange, But it took probably three years for me to be able to share my dad's story without breaking down in tears and racing out of the room. So learn how to share your story, have an elevator pitch, connect with the community and connect with organizations that have advocacy organization, advocacy opportunities that are available. Um, And just, you know, just do it. You don't you don't have to have any training. You don't have to be a professional. Just do it. I think that's an awesome conclusion to this podcast, Katie. It truly has been a pleasure and honor to talk with you and learn from the wealth of knowledge and experience you have in the area of lung cancer advocacy. We truly appreciate all the work you are doing. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of the ALSI podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming podcasts and events, which will be listed on our website, www.alsi.org. Thank you and have a great day, everyone. Thank you so much, Katie. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.